0: Driven to Fail is part of the Haggerty Podcast Network. Ross Bentley was going around 200 miles an hour, trying to qualify for the Indy 500, and then he nearly burned alive. Amazingly, that is not the most interesting part of his story. Now, racing drivers are athletes, and athletes have coaches. Ross is one of the most well-known driver coaches on the planet. His students have been to Le Mans and the Indy 500, and the list of accomplishments they've landed with Ross's help could fill a book. Racing lives and dies by numbers, and at the bottom it is about how most of us are not winners. Every field, every race, has one person in first place, and as much as a few dozen others who are not. Ross figured out long ago that the mental side was what matters, how we think about our strengths and weaknesses, how we deal with our inability to get better on our own. His Speed Secrets books, first published in the 1990s, have now seen multiple printings, and they basically taught the world a new way to look at a very old thing. Oh, and he got into all this. This is my favorite part. He got into all this for a simple reason. Another career wasn't giving him what he wanted. He tried to qualify for the Indy 500, that burning moment in the car, and he failed. He drove professionally after, but something was missing. So he invented a new job, and he became something like a 200-mile-an-hour psychologist. I'm Sam Smith. I'm a journalist and a club racer, and I love stories. This is a podcast about what happens when life doesn't go as we want. Welcome to Driven to Fail. All right, so like a lot of people, you know, you, your love for what you do is rooted in childhood, right? You know, your dad worked on race cars. He built race cars. You took you to a race when you were five years old, you told your parents that night you were going to be a race car driver. And you've done that now. But to me, that's that's actually the least interesting part of your career. You became a writer, a coach, a public speaker, you, you teach. And the common thread here is that all of these things are hugely intimidating to start doing when you're green, when you haven't haven't done them before. You're putting in stealth you're you're putting yourself in front of people. You just have to start how does your head work when you start something new, when you have to set up the rails and teach yourself how to think, right? That's starting over. What's that like?
1: Well, I can honestly say that the most intimidating thing I've ever done is not driving an Indy car at 200 miles an hour. It's (laughs) getting up and talking in front of a group of people. Now that is, (laughs) that's, that's the most terrifying thing I've ever done in my life. And (laughs) I've had a few disasters. (laughs) So, uh, but, but, You know, part of it, I think it's just driven by how much I want to do what I want to do. And there was a time where, hey, I wanted to be a professional race car driver. And part of that meant I had to stand up in front of a group of people. And I just forced myself to, by the way, I was the kid in high school that if I had to stand in front of three people and speak, I had to go to the bathroom first to remove some stuff in my body, (laughs) if you know what I mean. Uh... Yeah. Yeah. It just I mean, terrified me, and, and to this day, I mean, that's still the thing that I, I, I find the most challenging. Yeah. Also, the most rewarding when I get it right. <laughs> but. Uh, uh, but it's, it's kind of like funny. when you nail a corner. Yeah. Yeah.
0: I was going to say it's funny, right? Because on the one hand, you know, you 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 start unpacking that, and public speaking is, you know, the it's it's everyone's fear, screwing up visibly and obviously in front of an awful lot of people, and yet you just mentioned Indy and 220 mile an hour cars in the largest sporting stadium by capacity in the world. And that was somehow different, right? So what is it, what is it about the, why are we so tied to not wanting other people to see us face plant? What is it about that?
1: I don't know, but what I do know is that I'd rather face plant with a helmet on. (laughs) So I don't mind actually like, in, in fact, I actually have a little, trigger, a trigger phrase that I use, when I get into a race car, uh, or any car that I'm going to go and drive in front, you know, go and do something with, I put a uh, put my helmet on and I go, watch this. So I think uh, I'd like to think of myself and I think of myself as somebody who doesn't like to show off. I'm not that kind of a person. But there's one time when I'm doing when I'm doing what I love, which is driving cars, when I'm doing that, there's a side of me that goes, okay, watch this, watch what I can do. And I put my helmet on, nobody can see me. Uh, I'm in the car. It's, it's, you know, I'm I'm in my own little world. And then I get to that, you know, yeah, watch this. And then I can kind of go show off. And I have actually worked at trying to, I guess, maybe more than try to is take that same mindset and apply it to when I'm going to go and speak in front of a group of people. And, you know, I've gotten more used to speaking in front of a group of people, but there still is a little bit of, okay, here we go. Watch this.
0: It's and... so funny, literally, because like I, at one point in my life, so like I, anything I've ever tried, amateur racing, public speaking, like learning things, doing things in front of crowd, whatever it is, um, you know, you try different ways to get in, get your head in that space. And there was a point in club racing, where I tried that and I tried it twice and I tried it exactly twice because both times I tried it, I got out of my head and ended up bending a car, right? Like those moments, that exact thinking process led to me screwing up because it's it's so different for everybody, right? And it's so how we we tune our heads to get into the place where we we don't think about the penalty for coming apart. It's such a a weird balance. How, what is that? I mean, I I know the, I, I think I know the answer to this, but- when you start that process, when you when you think about starting something new, does that process change when there's more at stake? When you know there's more riding on it, whether it's money or or physical risk or how I mean, hell, reputation—it could be anything, right?
1: Well, you said you think you know the answer. Would you tell me what, what, what the answer is to that? Because I, <laughs> you know, I, I I don't know. What I do know is that whatever that secret is that that works, you know, what works for you doesn't work for me, and vice versa. And for anybody else, I mean, we all have our own little special way of, you know, I really get into the whole mental game of, of performance of anything. And really, I think if you go back to what you said in the very beginning about I've driven cars, I've coached people i have done all that. The, the common thread through all of that is, it's about maximizing performance that's what I kind of, that's what I get excited about. And if I'm driving a car, I want to perform at my best. If I'm going to write something, I want to perform at my best. If I'm going to, you know, fix a uh, make mechanical repairs to my old Lotus, I (laughs) want to perform at my best. And so I think that's it in that all coaching is, is helping people perform at their best, whether they're driving a car or whatever else it is. And I think what fascinates me is, is trying to figure out what it is that, that is the trigger to performing at your best. So, you know, if we were going to the track, Sam, I'd be, hmm, okay, what am, what's, the, what's the way into Sam? How do I get into Sam and figure out oh, what it is? Believe me, there's no way in. I've been looking for it. I've never found it, Ross. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's in there. <laughs> uh, and, and I think that's what I love about coaching more than anything else. Is, is, is finding that whatever that is, that works with, with that person. And, you know, I have a, I have a, I have a coaching client right now, who uh, is very different. The, the key to unlocking his performance is very different than 99% of the other drivers that I've worked with through the years. And I would say that I have learned as much about coaching in the past three and a half years, as I have in the previous three and a half decades because of this one, this one person.
0: Really? And
1: yeah, I mean, it's, 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 uh, you know, one of the things that, that I've always been competitive. i I think anybody that's sort of around this business and, you know, accomplished anything, you gotta, you have to be competitive to some extent and I've always been competitive almost to the point of sometimes getting in my own way. Huh. And years ago, I, kind of as I was searching for the key to unlocking my performance, looking at, you know, what, how does that work? And I can remember reading this book. It's a book called Thinking Body, Dancing Mind. Oh, well, sounds all woo-woo Zen-like, right? And, and it is kind of that way. But there was a big part of it was around how you, you know, if you focus on your own performance, you're more likely to get the result you want. If you focus on the competition and, you know, I'm going to beat you, I'm going to beat you, you're focusing more on them than you are on yourself. And that was a that was a very difficult thing for me to get my head wrapped around. But since that time, I've coached a lot of drivers in focus on your own performance, everything else will look after itself. And and yet this driver comes along who is extremely competitive. And the best thing I can do is dangle that competition in front of him, and he will go and get it. So I've had to, you know, I've gone from there to this whole other focus on your performance thing to now working with a driver, I'm not going to say it's a hundred percent switch back there to that, yeah. but there is a certain amount of it that is around just dangling that, you know, I can dangle a lap time in front of him and he will go and get it <laughs> in, in, in most drivers. You dangle a lap time in front of him and, you know, you're waiting for the car to come back on the, on the hook. So right. <laughs> no, yeah,
0: so I'm, I'm, I'm curious about, you know, we, we've you and I have talked a great deal about the way people think, you know, we used to when I lived in Seattle, we used to you, you were nearby and we used to meet for coffee. And, and we'd have these long discussions about how how you pull apart, how how we think when we're under pressure. But it, it, it's, it's remarkable because it's there are these rules that dictate generally how humans behave. And yet the, the specifics of, you know, we will get from A to B, but the path that, that you get from A to B with for everybody is different. And I, I'm just deeply curious how it works when, because the nature of coaching is exactly what you just said, right? It is adapting. You constantly ask questions, you adapt to the situation, and no two people are the same. But when you're, when you're trying to help someone improve, when the climb is really, really steep, when they're really far off from where they need to be, you know, the, the line, you know, the old line is you do it bird by bird, right? Step by step. But yeah. it, it has to look different when you're, you're trying to, to figure out sometimes what those steps are, right? How does, it, how does that process, does the process differ when the, the, the distance to go is longer or is that just change your patience and
1: your, your lens on
0: it with a student?
1: That's interesting, uh, the word patience in there. And I think one of the things that has, and this is probably true of all coaches, the more patient you become, The more successful you become, (laughs) and obviously, uh, patient is is uh, patience is a relative thing. You know, uh, there are race drivers who are patients, who who are patient in the way they drive, but uh, you know, it's relative. (laughs) Uh, I think Max Verstappen has become more patient in his driving. (laughs) Is he? is he patient compared to every other driver in the world or most people in the world? No, the guy is a crazy man, right? Uh, <laughs> uh, so it's relative. But I think you know, one of the things uh, there have been many times as a coach, where and, and in this, I think it comes from confidence. In the beginning, as you start coaching people, you you're looking for the quick result, because you need to prove yourself as a coach. And, yeah. you know, I'll admit it feeds your ego as a coach. And it's, it's part of that reputation thing. But I think the, I guess, hopefully the further along and the more successful you are, you kind of get to the point was like, you know what, if this doesn't work, I'm okay with it. <laughs> I'll, I'll wait. And, you know, eventually it'll work. And if it doesn't, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll find another coaching client. <laughs> and, and the second I started to do that, I think I became more effective. Really? Because I I can do the right thing. I can do the right thing for that person right now, even though it doesn't seem like necessarily the right thing, because uh, I'm okay to, to be patient and know, have the confidence that it will work out. And there have been a number of times in the last few years where I just have to look at the driver and go, it's okay, it'll work out.
0: Trust me, race, race driving is so funny because it is, you are, especially at a pro level, almost entirely at a pro level, right? Any place where there is a business behind you, where you are the tip of the spear of a team of people that could include, could be somewhere between three and several hundred people working to put you in that car and have, have you have the best equipment day, setup, luck, you know, process, whatever it is. And, and yet it's, you know, that you are ultimately your failure or, or, or succeed. Your, your failure, or success in that moment is yours, but it is also not yours, right? It is entirely related to everything that has happened before. And yet, there are certain moments that simply land in your lap, and you have to own them because it is you. It doesn't matter whether the car lets you down. If it lets you down a second before you backed it into the wall, like that's still your fault, right? And you know, I, I, I backing up a little, one of the the truest aphorisms in motorsport is that you know you can. You can be very, very good in the car and yet still not be able to teach it, right? You can still be an awful coach. You know, you basically invented a way of doing this, of talking about it, looking at it away from the norm. You know, your books back that up and the number of people who have, you know, think along your lines and have adopted your method of teaching that, that this is all evidence of that. But you, at some point, you had to stop and teach yourself how to coach people. What, what, what did that process look like?
1: Uh, I, I think it begins, uh, I often tell you, say to people that I'm a learning junkie. <laughs> like I'm just, I, am addicted to learning and I just find it. And maybe it's, I'm a curious person, uh, as opposed to, man, you dude, you're, you're curious, you're weird. Um, yes, that's the case. But, but I like, I like, I like figuring things out. And I, I think again, coaching is it's figuring how do we get from here to there? so i like i like that part of it and uh i I think at the core of what i do as a coach is simply that it's just having that attitude or mindset of how do we get from here to there and being open to it and so you know i i certainly have taken coaching uh i don't want to say i take it more seriously than than some others but I have I want to be careful in how I say this. I don't want to insult somebody, but there are coaches, I'm saying that in air quotes here, who are really their underemployed race drivers. <laughs> and they would just rather be at the track driving a race car. And do I love driving a race car? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> More than anything else in the world, except it's tied with coaching. Because there are times I go to a track and somebody will come up to me and go, not so much lately, but a few years ago, they would come up to me and said, uh, you know, you're racing this weekend? I go, no, I'm coaching. And they go, oh, that's too bad. <laughs> and I'd say, no, it's not. This is cool. Like, I love what I do. I love the coaching part of it. So I think um, uh, thinking about coaching as a profession, I spend a lot of time studying around how do humans learn, you know, coaching. I you know, I went through business coaching uh, training. So how to become a better business coach? Well, a lot of that is listening skills. And it's more about thinking, you know, the timing of, again, identifying what the problem is and all that kind of stuff. So I, I guess I I looked at it from that perspective. and I and, and I think that I study the science, the art, the whatever you want to call it of coaching just as much as I've focused on, on studying the science, the art of driving a car. And, you know, I, I was just actually at an event and I'm talking to a group of instructors and these are all volunteer instructors who are instructing at a track day event and uh, they were like, well, you know, how should we approach this? And I think, and I, and I said, think about when you come to the track as a driver. You come to the track and you think, I'm going to work on my braking. I'm going to work on the line through turn three. I'm going to work on getting back to power earlier. I'm going to work on on those things. And and then I go, okay, now as an instructor, think about what you're going to work on as an instructor. And it's none of those technical things. It could be maybe you want to play with the volume of your voice and Hmm. the intensity of your voice, because that's going to have an impact on how your student responds to you. And it may be, you know, a challenge to you would be do less telling and more asking. And so thinking about instructing and coaching as a, uh, a, 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 not just a, I'm an imparter of, is that a word? And I'm imparter <laughs> yeah, of sure. information to you. Um, I like making up words. I actually made up a word this past weekend of you somebody was a better recoverer. <laughs> <laughs> They're better at recovering from, from something. So, yes. Uh, so I so I think you know that's um I've looked at it as okay that didn't work what do I need to do differently to make that work <laughs> And now I've forgotten forgotten completely what your original question was but <laughs>
0: <laughs> Well no it leads into something else right so you you mentioned you mentioned working with Amateur drivers, and that's you know that's one of the interesting things about your your work mix in your career is that you will you know one weekend you will be with people who are spending money and doing this the way some people do you know play tennis, and the other weekend you know a week later you might be at Le Mans, you might be you know on the wall at Sebring, you are working with people, professional athletes. Sometimes this is you know semi pros, sometimes this is all the way up the chain to the people who get paid large amounts of money to literally be some of the best in the world at it. Right, and one of the Weird little secrets of professional motorsport is how many athletes at that top level have coaches, right? And it's not necessarily, oh no, well turn here and break the car here. It's performance coaching. You know they know how to drive, but they can't always access their best self to do it the best they can. And you know that's that's common, and you know you see that in football, you see it in in American football, you see it, you know, literally any sport, all the way up to F one. People have performance coaches, but. At the the absolute top level, at the top of their game, people who are, you know, in that 10-year window between 18 and, you know, 28 before they they get, quote-unquote, old as an athlete, how how do those people, do they look at failure or subpar work differently? Because the, the stakes are so much higher when you're getting paid for it, when you know you have a closing window, when you could get booted from a team or a contract at any minute. And sometimes that hangs on, like, Literally, what you do in a thirty-second window at race weekend X, and that might determine your entire contract. I mean, you've seen it in F one, right? Where you know one guy will pull something out of out of his behind, and then all of a sudden, like, oh, everybody's interested in it again. Right? How do they look at failure differently? Does it change because they're up there?
1: Well, it's interesting. I, I believe I can't cannot think of another profession where you have to compete for your job with somebody that's willing to pay to do your job. (laughs) You know, imagine, you know, the vice president of marketing for some major company walking into the office one day and the president says, you can go home. We've got somebody over here that's willing to pay $200,000 to do your job. (laughs) But that's, that's the life of a professional race driver. So if you're not aware of that and thinking about that, and you know, to your point, I think most drivers are kind of in the mindset of, of my last lap is what counts yeah, because that's what people are going to remember. Right. And, and yet when a driver, so what, what I think is interesting is some drivers, uh, they need to have that comfort level that comes from I'm solid. I'm looked after. Nobody's doubted me. I'm fine. Other drivers, uh, if they, they don't really care about that. And, you know, I, I we could pick up some, you know, examples of, of drivers in Formula One or IndyCar or NASCAR or something like that, where when they're with a team that's surrounding them and making them feel comfortable and confident and things like that, they're unbelievable performance. But if they're in a team where they're always constantly feeling like, I'm not feeling supported, I'm not, I'm you know, I'm one race away from getting, cut from my contract. They don't perform as well. And so so I think, and yet there are other drivers who they don't really care about that if they kind of got the I don't care about the rest of the world attitude. (laughs) So I think there's some of that. And it's, it's, I think some of it is how some people deal with failure. You know, they're not that successful. So then they go, Oh, my God, I'm gonna lose my contract. And they're, they tense up. And and you know, understand at the level of of, of indie cars or Formula One or NASCAR or professional sports car racing, the difference between the best and the rest are you know hundreds of a second sure, over yeah. the course yeah. of three miles. Right? right? It's it's kind of mind boggling how yeah. close they are. But you know, once you tense up just that tiniest little bit, and you have that tiniest little bit of doubt in your mind, that could be that could be a tenth of a second. And that's the difference between having a job and not having a job. But there are certain drivers who they kind of go through life with a, I don't really care what anybody thinks of me. (laughs) And that's a good thing too. So yeah, it's interesting. Yeah.
0: Is there anything in common? You know, you mentioned that, so that two, that group that's split, right? On the one hand you have people who really need to feel supported by the team in order to produce. And on the other hand, you have the people who don't. Is there, is, do they, do the two groups have anything in common? Like, can you start working with one? Can you tell that one in group a really needs the things that everybody in group a needs and, you know, if he's a type B, well, that person is, they, they, they work like all the other type B's or is it just you're in one group or the other and we're all different and you still have to kind of play it minute by minute.
1: Well, I think if people around those people spend enough time thinking about that and working with them, an example, I used to use a lot, and it's you know somebody has to be around. Have to be a little older and have been following motorsport for a little bit of time. But Alex Zanardi, if you think about Alex Zanardi, when he came into IndyCar racing, he dominated. You know he'd win a race, he'd spin donuts on the track, and you know the crowd would go wild, and people became big Alex Zanardi fans. Well, Alex Zanardi is a he's a real people person. He's a real outgoing, extroverted kind of person he gets his energy from other people and so he wins the indy car championship a couple times williams formula one team says come on over drive formula one he goes to williams formula one team back in the day when when patrick head and frank williams were running the williams team and both of them were famous for your driver shut up and drive we don't care about you we don't like drivers if we could put a computer in the car we would do that and i think People went, you know, Zanardi didn't perform at his best when he went to Formula One. And there were all these, you know, theories about, well, you know, he went from steel brakes to carbon brakes, you know, he couldn't adapt to that. That has nothing to do with that. I think it had to do with how he felt supported and the love around him. Like, I know that seems kind of weird that a guy at that level could have his confidence level impacted by that, but it does. I mean, I think you can look, yeah. You it's can look not- at it today and you, you can look at Daniel Ricciardo. you can look at Lewis Hamilton back and forth. Like their confidence level, their belief in themselves, they're far more fragile than you really think. Okay. And and I think if there's a common thing amongst all those high performers, yeah, they they have days when they question themselves. We look at them and think, oh my God, they're, you know superstars they're unbelievable you know they're godlike and everything and they never have any doubts themselves yeah they do they're human (laughs) so i think that that has a big impact on drivers and and what what amazes me to this day is that there are formula one teams who are spending hundreds of millions of dollars on all this technology and they don't think about there's a human driving that car
0: (laughs) well i mean it's you mentioned zanardi right i mean that's such a he's such a, a case study for that because he's this, you know, I've met him, I've interviewed him and he's, he's this warm, friendly, wonderful dude who, you know, he has just kind of this Italian bubbliness about him. And I mean, like yeah. I remembered my name weeks later and like, you know, pro athletes you remember, you meet do not remember your name, right? I saw him at something else and he remembered my name. But the the, the thing about him is, you know, his story is remarkable, right? You know, there's an car crash, where was it, Lausitz ring, where he yeah, loses his yeah, legs true. and he comes back from that and builds a career with hand controls and, and looking at it, thinking about what you said and, and kind of chewing on his career, you know, everything that he did after that, literally the entire motorsport world was behind him because they wanted, we all wanted to see that guy back in the car and succeeding. And as a result, I mean, it is. is, it, it wasn't all of this, obviously, although, you know, I like to think that me sitting in my house, hoping and praying for Alex and means that Alex and had a good day because I like Alex. Yeah. But oh, the, the cool thing is that that, you know, it makes sense that that would have made a difference because he's that kind of guy. Does it, it get more, so So motorsports interesting because, you know, the deeper you get into your career, if you keep producing on a certain level, you can stay in it at, a, at, at the top level. And yet, you know, some of everybody falls off because you, your reactions and your processing speed and your, you know, your the way your brain works at 32 is not the same as it was at 22, right? And it may not matter in a club sedan at Blackhawk Farms, but it, it matters at Indy. It matters at Spa. It matters you know, for those hundredths of a second. And does it get more difficult as, as pros get more seat time and longer resumes and more steeped in who they are and how they work and think? Does it get more difficult to help them improve? Does that inertia or maybe just the idea that at that point they have less to lose or in some cases more to lose or a cemented legacy or nothing like does it change as they get older or do most of these guys and, and women tend to work relatively the same over the course of a career mentally no matter what they've done
1: well i think it, it, there's a side of me that wants to disagree with what you said and there's oh, part of me that please. wants to agree with you and, and and part of it is you know with age like if you take a you know a driver who's been successful in NASCAR, IndyCar, sports cars, Formula One, whatever, and 20 years into their career, I don't think it's a lack of reflexes or processing speed by their brain or anything like that. I think it has more to do with their desire, their commitment, really? their how bad do they want it. And there are drivers who, you know, there used to be, I think, you know, Enzo Ferrari apparently said that, you know, every child that, you, that a driver has, a, you know, if they, a, if they have a kid that's born, you know, that's worth, I don't know, half a second or something or a tenth of a second or something Enzo like that. Enzo was also and, famously a dick, though. So, like, he's yeah, dead yeah, now. Yeah. Screw him. But go yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. And all he cared about was the engine that was in his car. Right, so, right. Uh, uh, but But there is a certain amount of truth to that. And I actually don't believe it has anything necessarily to do with the number of kids you have. But there are drivers who I've seen who have gotten to a point in their career where – uh, they just don't want it as bad. Like, it doesn't matter to them as much. And one of the things that I that I have massive respect for, a guy like Lewis Hamilton or Michael Schumacher, even like Lewis Hamilton now, you can go, one of the things that impresses me about him is he still wants it. <laughs> he wants it really, 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 really bad. Yeah, and, and that's impressive. Um, Fernando Alonso, I'm sorry, he has not lost anything. <laughs> it doesn't matter he still wants it and yet you can get another driver who has gotten to that same age and yeah you know again going back to the how much how close it is if a driver is a tenth of a second over a minute 45 second lap you know right now count to a tenth of a second you can't do it think about think about how many actions how many movements how many Technique skills a driver has put in on a track, a three-mile track over a minute and 45 seconds or whatever it is, and think about all those different things they do, and one driver is a tenth of a second faster than another driver. And therefore, and and my point is is that what's making the difference sometimes in that tenth of a second is just, am I willing to push it through that corner that tiny little bit more? How bad do I want to get... Out of this corner, and and I think that's the difference between guys who have have fallen off in their career uh, versus drivers who are still strong towards the end of their career. And and I think you know the smart ones, the smart ones get to that point and recognize it. You know, I, I, Rick Mears who I just I, I think is one of the greatest of all time. I think he recognized it. He went, you know what. It doesn't matter quite as much to me anymore, and I'm not going to push for that last tenth of a second. So I'm going to stop now. And Nico Rosberg, yeah, great example.
0: Won a championship, so, checked out. You know, it's just
1: done. Yeah. He was done. <laughs> check the check the check or cash the check too, right? Right. right. Yeah,
0: well, yeah. That, that that's so that's so interesting, right? Because it does it ties into how how we change as we age and how we view our own failings as we age, right? Because, you know, there are things that I do now as a 41 year old person that at 21 I would have looked at and been like, way to go, Smith, you sold out, you gave up, and you don't try anymore. Nice. And now it's like, no, I, I have different priorities. I work a different way. That's it. I think a different way. So you've, you've seen a lot of people get into the sport early and very young by motorsport terms, right? You know, in, in teens and in carts and, and that's, that, that's interesting because we do, as you've noted, change mentally. And there's this hilarious line that you gave in an interview a few years ago. And forgive me because I'm going to read your words back to you. I have a habit of doing this mm. on the show because I love it. But does it start with um? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I said your line, not mine. Um, okay, yeah. so you, you were talking about wanting to play professional tennis as a kid because you you played a lot as a kid and pro seemed like the next step, right? So forgive me, I'm going to read this. And the quote is. For a while, I thought I was going to make it as a tennis pro. Then I found out that I couldn't afford to compete with tennis players who had wealthier families who could afford tennis lessons all day long. And, and the joke is, you know, the, the answer is, uh, you know, the answer ended up being a sport even more expensive, even more, you know, more of a, a many-headed hydra that sucks up money. And yet it, it got me thinking about the, the way we change as children versus the way we change as adults. Because when we make big shifts like that as a kid, when we walk away from a path and everybody has them, right? It could be even just like, oh, wow, I'm not going to learn to play the trombone today because I hate it and also I'm awful at it and I don't have, you know, my tongue is shaped wrong or my brain, you know, <laughs> goes into goes into seizures every time I hear Glenn Miller. Pick an answer. But, you know, the <laughs> the idea that whenever we hit a path or a door that isn't going to work when we're really, really young or even even a little older, it's just like, oh, you know, Okay, you know, there's a shrug and you, you try something else. But as a grown-up, a grown-up, God, i hanging around my kids too long. As an adult, these these door closings carry so much more weight. Is that just inertia or is it, do you think we, you know, fear of losing what we build? Why do you think that is?
1: Uh, uh, well, I don't, when I turn into an adult, <laughs> I'll let you know. <laughs>
0: I am. I am speaking to uh, but, you from a desk that is literally filled with bags of candy, so I don't know what you are talking about at
1: all. But go on. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but no. I think. I think there certainly is. I mean, there is a fear of of losing what we built, and uh, I think that's part of it. You get to an age, and you, well, first of all, I think you get to an age, and you get comfortable. You know, one of the things about being sixteen or twenty or whatever it is. <laughs> what I remember of it is I wasn't very comfortable. (laughs) I was always (laughs) like, okay, what's next? What, you know, I gotta, I gotta try to do this because I'm trying to, I'm trying to prove myself, I think. And maybe, I don't know if it was proven, it proved myself to myself or to other people, but, uh, I certainly wasn't very comfortable. And I would say today I am more comfortable. I would actually say that in the last few years, I've tried to become less comfortable again. And, uh, But I think for sure, there was a period of time where, you know, I actually went through a period of time as a professional race driver, who was also building a business around, uh, around coaching other drivers and teaching other drivers, where I was afraid that if I made a move in a a race, and I crashed, somebody would go, Oh, well, you're not going to coach me because you crash cars. (laughs) So I was afraid of what that would do to my reputation. And it had a negative impact on my driving for a while and I had to kind of work through that. And then it got to a point, where it was like, ah, who gives a you know, what, um, I just going to go and do it anyways. <laughs> but and also, you know, I think it, for every person, their belief in themselves, it changes a lot in that area. And, you know, I've gotten to a point in my, in my life, not that this is about me, but this, the, you know, I've gotten to a point in my life where uh, I don't I don't care in a way. And I don't mean that in a in a bad way, It actually means it in a good way. Uh, I think when you're 16, there's a Yeah, sure, you've got to prove yourself to so you can move up the ladder. But there's also a little bit of I don't have a reputation yet. So I'm just (laughs) going to go and do this. So I yeah, I don't know. I I don't know.
0: <laughs> you, you mentioned yeah. you mentioned comfort. One of the guys I used to work with at Road and Track, uh, a really really entertaining dude named Kyle Kennard, but he had this this line. You know, we talked all the, all the time about how necessary because in writing one of the things you have to do is figure out figure out how to be yourself on the page and be comfortable with what you're doing and all these things that are just as interesting, I swear, as 220 miles an hour in an Indy We could talk about them hours on length, but I won't make you do it now. Um, but he has this line about but comfort that is. It, it, it's something like you know, comfort is poison, right? It's toxic. It, it keeps you from moving forward because you're happy where you are. It's the definition. You know, I'm sitting on the couch. This is great. Why would I get up? And yet, it's also very comfortable, right? We know that it is not the way to keep improving, and yet we're, we're wired to seek out. Not a, and it's an interesting. It's interesting because in some cases, it's a form of failure to simply sit stagnant and be comfortable. And in some cases, it is an end goal. But motorsport's funny because it is such a numbers business. You know, everything comes down to this inarguable lap time, a number that represents you. It doesn't matter if the car is slow or if you're slow. If the lap time isn't good enough, it's not good enough. So what do you? how do you start working with people who are in that place of comfort and can't quite wrap their heads, and especially the pros, right? The people who know they are very good, but they're not as good as they need to be but how do you start working with people who are in that place of comfort and can't wrap their heads around how to make the next step to get off the figurative couch and stop being comfortable?
1: Well, the good news is that if somebody is getting into motorsport, I think there's a certain level of I'm okay being a little uncomfortable. So (laughs) some of that is, is they wouldn't even be doing it if there was, if there wasn't some acceptance of that. Uh, the, you know, we can have conversations all day long with some drivers, you know, hey, there are 28 cars in this race. One of them's going to win. That means there are 27 losers. Get used to it. That's the nature <laughs> of the sport. And so so I think there's some of that. The good news is is that if somebody is not comfortable or can't be comfortable with losing, there there's a certain amount of that, that of that 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 is good. You know, you want somebody that's if somebody is too comfortable with, okay, well, I finished tenth. I'm okay with that. Uh, <laughs> that gets pretty old pretty soon. <laughs> and, and you know, having said that, I have worked with drivers who, I guess, part of it comes down to what a driver's objective is. Right. You know, what are their goals? And I have worked with drivers who I wanted to turn them into Formula One or IndyCar champions. But guess what? They didn't. They didn't go? want to. And that's totally fair,
0: Did they know that? Did they realize that? That's the question.
1: Well, I've worked with drivers who I think early in their career, like when they're 14 or 17 or whatever, they thought they wanted to do that. But as they got in and I'm coaching them and I'm asking them to do things and eventually they get to the point where it's like, (laughs) I'm not willing to put that effort in and you know i mentioned the driver that i'm currently working with one of the things that that separates him from other people is as a gentleman driver he wants it as bad as any team wanting to go to formula one that i've ever seen really and that's what that's what separates him and from the from the rest of the gentleman amateur drivers how and oh sorry go ahead and i would say you know i know i've talked to some other gentleman amateur drivers And they want it really bad, too. But Stephen is at another level there. Uh, So, you know, I'm in a great position as a coach because I don't have to worry about that part of it too much. Uh, uh, All I have to worry about is him calling me at 530 in the morning and saying, what do you want me to do today, coach? (laughs) Uh, But uh, so I think to answer your question, I think it comes back to, being on the same page in terms of what are the goals here what do you really want to achieve and and then are you willing to do what it takes hmm. and we can have a conversation about that but then you have to prove that with your actions and there are there are things as a coach that I can do to try to motivate inspire and maybe up that a tiny little bit but at the end of the day there's only so much I can do i mean if driver says i'm not willing to go to the gym for three hours every day this week. Okay. I know what I've got to work with, <laughs> in which case I'll work to that level.
0: <laughs> so, so, okay. So how, how common th- that leads, there's an inevitable follow up question of that, which is how common is it at, cause you have to assume it's pretty common on the pro levels, but on the gentleman driver level, how common is it for somebody to want it as badly as current driver does, right? As is that one in ten? Is that one in a hundred? How rare is it?
1: A uh, good question. Um, I am going to say it's extremely rare. And, and again, I've seen other drivers, and I've worked with other drivers who want it really, really bad. But that last one percent of what it's going to take, they might not be willing to take. And that's not a that's not a like a knock against them or anything, because you know some of it. Some of it comes down to the reason they're where they're at is because they've been incredibly successful in their life hmm. and they now have the resources. And I don't mean just writing a big fat check, but they've got the resources in terms of the time and the commitment and all that kind of stuff. And so they've been incredibly successful up to there. And, you know, some of them are, okay, I'm willing to go that far. I'm willing to go 99% of the way there, but that last 1%. I might have done that when i was 18 but not now (laughs) and so i would say it's incredibly rare that the the driver i'm coaching now is incredibly rare person (laughs) that's cool and and if any of you anybody anybody listening to this uh is going to get into coaching and anything whether it's your kids soccer or whatever it is right uh the number one rule as a coach uh pick the best athlete to coach (laughs) I'm a genius. I if picked you. Of course, I have. Yeah. Yes. If you, <laughs> if you, if you have the right person to coach, I, you know, and it's probably no different than a coach of an NFL football team, sure, right? Yeah. You have the best players in the team. Your job as a coach gets a whole lot easier.
0: Okay, so so we've kind of orbited the idea of of choices we make when we're younger, and I, I want to kind of circle back to your career because you had some some interesting defining moments, but there was. You know this was coming. You knew I was going to ask you about this. There was one moment that that was kind of a hinge point, and that's your, your one crack at the Indy 500 in the early 90s, right? And I don't want to dive into too much of the moment-to-moment because you wrote this wonderful six-part piece on your website about it, and it's worth reading, and people should read it. But I do want to talk about a few things there, if you don't mind, if we can, right? Mm-hmm. So you wanted to run in that race since you were nine, you were, what was it? 36, 35 when it happened? This was 93?
1: Oh, sure. Okay. Let's call you 36. <laughs> I can't do the math, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> why I was, I was late as a race driver okay. finally getting there. Yeah. So,
0: so why, why yeah. did it, I did, and, and this is just a, a curiosity thing, not along the, the theme of what we talk about, but why did it matter for you?
1: Uh, Sorry, but I kind of want to answer that question by saying, well, why would it not? I know why it wouldn't, but I mean, like, what's what's the answer? What's the words? (laughs) Well, uh, I think it's, I mean, it's just something that had been there. It it wasn't a dream. It was, was, I'm not even sure it was a goal. It was what I was going to do. Like, there was kind of never any doubt in my mind that I was going to do that. Like, that's that's what I do. And, uh, and then sort of being what's the right word? Certainly not denied the opportunity, but kind of denied the opportunity by by what happened, right? Um, It, it, uh, you know, yeah, it was painful. It was, it sucked big time. Um, But
0: Okay, so we'll yeah, we'll get to what happened in a yeah. second, but Indy, you know, for those people who don't know, Indy is funny in that, you know, a it's like any other piece of professional motorsport in that, you know, it is on all on the driver, but it is also not all on the driver, right? It's it's also a, a world of incredibly narrow margins. You know, you can get there and you can try and you can do your absolute best, get everything you could possibly getting out of the car, and then you can get bumped out of the field because. You know, there was a weird wind on the day you qualified or you're, you know, whatever, for whatever reason, you're a mile an hour slow and a mile an hour there is an eternity. Everything counts. The pressure is insane, but it's not just the pressure of making the race or not making the race. You know, you have this, this depth of history behind you that you're at a century old racetrack running in a race that has been running for a hundred years, more than a hundred years. And you go out there by yourself and you qualify alone, but Everybody I've talked to who's ever run it says that there is this moment where, like, they all kind of wake up the first time they go there and and see the race and and get kind of plugged into the car. There's this moment where they wake up to the weight of it. You know, Alex, Alex Rossi told me that, like, he didn't really get it until he ran the 500 the first time. it was just like, yeah, okay, fine, it's a race. You know, it's 500 miles, racetrack in Indiana, who cares? And then the day he ran it, it carried, it suddenly this with the flyover, the people in the stands and, you know, the, the broadcast, all of it suddenly carried this giant weight. Of course, you know, he won, but that's not part of the story. So how much of a big deal was it? What was it like when, so since childhood, the moment you wake up and realize that, you know, holy hell, we're, we're here today we have a shot at getting in the show and there's a lot greater chance of flaming out and not happening, but we have a shot. Do you, in that moment, how much time, and it could have been a fraction, it could have been nothing, but how much time do you dwell on the chance of flaming out? Cause for me, I have to think about that for just a second, go, okay, it's there and then put it away. But that, that just can't come into your head. Right.
1: I, I you know, I'm, I'm sitting here trying to replay back, Three decades, wow, something like that. <laughs> um, it's a long time ago. Uh, it, I don't think, up until, up until my incident, which we can talk about. Um, I there was there was not even uh, stupid me, maybe, but there was no there was no doubt whatsoever. Hmm. It was just you know yeah we're going to go and we're going to qualify and then we're going to race and. Did I know the, uh, you know, the impact of how big this event was? Yeah. I mean, I'd followed it for years. Uh, You know, at nine, I could tell you nine, I would have been, that would have been like 1966 or something like that. I could tell you every Indianapolis 500 winner from 1911 when... (laughs) when Ray who won it I could tell you every winner all the way up until the year that year and you know when I got there in 93 I could tell you who who won every single race up until that time so I I knew how big the event was but it was I guess there was sort of a again maybe it was naive being naive or stupid or whatever it was you know I'm kind of going there with the lowest budget of anybody certainly that year and, you know, outdated equipment and all that kind of stuff. But there was never a doubt in my mind. It was just like, well, this is where I belong. So I, again, stupidity, being naive, whatever you want to call that. uh, I I would like to think that there's a more scientific thing, you know, neuroscience approach to it is, I had programmed my brain for the day I was going to be there. And it was like, I'm ready. And (laughs) You know, yes, if I'd step back and kind of looked at it and went, okay, you're driving a two year old chassis. You're driving the Buick turbo engine, which, yeah, it's got a lot of power, but, you know, we've blown up 11 of them in the first two weeks of being <laughs> Wait, being here. I'm sorry, uh, 11
0: <laughs> in two weeks? You popped 11 well, motors in two weeks?
1: Between myself and I had two teammates, Robbie Buell and Eric Bachelard, who are still doing brown stuff around racing and stuff like that. Between the three of us, we blew up 11 engines before qualifying weekend. And all three of us had spent time at Methodist Hospital to the point where we had ironically, when we had been admitted to the hospital, we had been in the same room. So we put a Dale coin racing sticker on the, on the, on the door to the, our hospital room. So,
0: That's great. Yeah. Yeah. I'm
1: serious. And so, yeah, I mean, if I'd step back and looked at all of those factors and the fact that, you know, that year, I can't remember exactly, but you know, for the 33 starting positions, I think there were, there was, there had to have been at least five or six cars or drivers teams that weren't going to make the field. Yeah. So there were, you know, 38, 39, maybe 40 cars there trying to get into the field, just trying to qualify. And yeah, I mean, if I'd step back and been realistic about it, I would probably would have gone, boy, I don't know if I'm going to make this. <laughs> it's like that never never crosses your mind.
0: And that's remarkable to me, not because of, of you as a racing driver, but because you as a fan, right? Because most drivers, you know, don't, aren't simply that steeped in history. But one of the things about being a fan of the 500 is that you kind of get buried in stats, right? And because there are refs, there are hundreds and hundreds of people who have started that race and just gone nowhere and turned into nobodies. Just statistically, one person wins it. And it's, you know, the field is, 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 Rows and rows deep, and every single one of those people goes home. And many of them, like there was a long period where people just showed up for that race, and sometimes didn't run an indie car in any or the equivalent in any other race that year. And so, to, you know, it's it, it's funny just that you having all that in the back of your head, and you were able to put it away. I mean, I have 400 voices in my head that never shut up. But so okay, so so let's step back a sec. So it's 1993. You're 36. It's May. You're on a three car team. You have Old car, old equipment, old car motors that I got eleven motors, it, motors that are coming apart. Uh, Robbie Buell crashes at two hundred twenty miles an hour, goes to the hospital, is told he can't drive. You're in a nine hundred horse car that weighs fifteen hundred pounds, and this is not far off the era when broken bones were, you know, pretty common every year. Every year, somebody'd stick a car on a fence and get like really hurt. But so, what happened to you? So. You know Indy is a squared off oval, which means it really has four straights, and in the short one between turn three and turn four, the fuel regulator cracks. It's right behind you, it's above the engine, it sprays methanol all over you, high pressure, you're bathing in the stuff, you catch fire, and the car is still going more than 200 miles an hour. And at this point, I'm really curious, the voice in the back of your head says, "What?
1: Get out!") <laughs> <laughs> It's kind of hot in here. Let's get out of here. No. It, yeah, it, it's, um, uh, I'd like to say that I did all the right things, but I did many of the wrong things.
0: What were Okay. Start uh, with the right things. What, what were the right things to do in that moment when everything went to absolute just horseshit?
1: So I turned into turn four and because I'd been aware of my teammate Eric Bachelor Bachelor following me out of the pits, I knew that Eric was behind me. So I back off the throttle I in this few seconds, I do the calculation in my head is like, if I lift off the throttle here, Eric's going to try to tuck down low coming out of turn four. So and if I come down to turn four to get to pit lane, uh, I'm going to hit him and we're gonna have a crash, right, which is going to be make my fire just a little worse. <laughs> <laughs> So I do the little calculation of that. So I made the decision to kind of ease out of it, kind of hang up high until he went by and then tuck down below. But by that point, I can't really kind of see because the vapor methanol burns clear, but there's vapors and my visor is starting to melt. And I can't quite see the way I should. So I'm thinking, I'm just going to get down low. I'm going to get down low as low as I can and get this thing stopped. So once Eric cleared me, I started to hammer the brakes. And I got the car stopped just past pit entrance, close to the pit wall, but still on the track. And I'm thinking, I just need to get out of this as fast as I possibly can. And so the very first thing that I did wrong is I didn't hit the fire button. I didn't.
0: The at all? Panic
1: in me. Nope. Wow. I, 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 didn't even think of hitting the fire button, which since that day, I've trained a lot of drivers in. Yeah. When you get in a car, where's the fire button? Get used to looking at it, know where it is, because if there's something there, that's the first thing you do. I didn't think of that. I, all I thought about was I got to get stopped. I got to get out.
0: So you're literally just. So wait. So in between, how much time has elapsed from the moment where the where poof you go up and the car catches fire and you're on fire in it, and right now when your co-driver is your team, sorry, your teammate has passed you, and you're in the position to deal with this? Like he's not. You don't have to worry about hurting him or, or collecting him. How much time in between the fire and now when it started? Uh, I, a second. There's
1: a two. Th- uh, well, they have been not, not understanding the question. Like what I know is that somewhere there is a video yeah. of me coming through that corner and coming to a stop and to the point where somebody actually got to me was, I was on fire for 43 seconds.
0: Holy hell, um, Ross.
1: Which, uh, you know, so where the, all that, yeah you know, at 220 miles an hour, you're going, you're, it doesn't take long to get through turn four. right I'm right. assuming it's. You know a second or two that then i'm you know i'm on the brakes trying to get the car stopped and you know, the second wrong thing i did although it really probably was the right thing in some ways was i never knew you could get out of an indie car without taking the steering wheel off somehow <laughs> i had the belts undone before the car came to stop and i'm get climbing out of the car before the car has actually stopped rolling and somehow i got my body out of the cockpit with the steering wheel still on but it just goes to show what motivation will do. <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. And yeah, and uh, yeah. So then you. Um,
0: so, but that that's uh, an interesting moment, right? Because it, it takes. I mean, indie people start preparing deals for indie a year or more in advance, right? This is something you ramp up to. And what's always gotten me about it is that, you know, guys will start assembling a deal, a ride, the day after the five hundred of the previous year. And then they'll get all the way around to the next May. And then something will happen. You know, they'll blow a motor that they can't replace. They don't have the money to pay for, or, you know, the sponsor deal falls apart, like literally days before the race and they have nothing, but little tiny moments, a year's worth of work could just be poofed like that and just go completely away. And, and you, you had this and you've written about this, but you had this moment where you realized that it was done. Like this was your shot at that and that year's ride was done but also you're in that part of your career where like it wasn't a guarantee that you even if you hustled as hard as could possibly hustle that you would ever get back in a an indy car and much less in at the 500 at indy when did that set in? because you 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 ended up with second degree burns on your on your face your nose your neck your hands and you're you go to the hospital and you have a lot of time to think about this when when did the kind of like gears of of consequence all kind of click into place with that
1: so this happened on Friday prior to the first weekend of, of qualifying. And I was in intensive care through Sunday, I guess wow. I was. Um, I think I got out of there on Monday morning. And at that point, I asked the doctor, I mean, when can I drive? Can I go back to track now? <laughs> and he, Yeah, kind of almost like you just did, like, like almost laughed at me <laughs> and, and said, you know, you're going to be like three or four weeks before you can drive again. And that's when it hit me. Well, sir, two things actually hit me. <laughs> One was, uh, no, I'm getting back in the car this week. That's
0: such a driver answer. Oh,
1: my God. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but yes, there was a moment when I'm looking at my hands and they're, there's really no sort of, there's not a lot of meat on my fingers. Um, and they're now wrapped up and my hands look like a, a mummy, right? And I look in the mirror, and my face is massive blister. And my eyes are like little tiny little slits in there. And I've got bandages around my neck. And, you know, so uh, there is a side of me that's going, maybe this is it, maybe that maybe I can. not And uh, so yeah, I mean, that's when it kind of hits you and you go. Um, uh, it was a, stronger words than right. this sucks. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, and Uh, just, well, so, so on top of that, so there's like massive disappointment and, and, you know, Hey, we've all been disappointed in our lives, right? Yeah. From the first time somebody says no to you. And when you ask somebody (laughs) out for a date to, you know, whatever, right. There's (laughs) massive disappointments in our, in our lives. This was at another level, (laughs) that level of disappointment. That's all that's the only way I can describe it. Yeah. Take like the thing you were most disappointed about in your life and multiply that by whatever. And that's the way I felt. But there was also something else. And that is I had a contract with a sponsor. They paid me, they paid me a lot of a lot of money. That was a huge amount of money to me, not enough money for right. for what we were attempting to do, <laughs> but it was still a lot of money. And I had a contract with them. I signed a deal and I, I had a contract that said i was going to compete in the indy 500 so there's also uh fear of, of that of oh my god i can't live up to this and you know fortunately i was able to this was monday uh, the following friday morning i'm back well i've seen this burns plastic surgeon guy pretty much every day that week. But on Friday morning, I said, when can I drive? Hmm. And he looked at me and said, if you can get in the car, you can drive, I'm not going to stop you. So my wife and I immediately drove from the hospital directly to the speedway um, to get ready. And, you know, the the funny thing is, is that i had actually called Dale Coyne and said, Hey, I'm coming to the track. And he says, okay, uh, hang on, I've got to go. Robbie just crashed again (laughs) because he had crashed the day before my fire. And the doctors said, you've got to be out of the car for a week because of your concussion. But So he's back on that Friday to drive again. And another motor blew, pitched him into the wall. He's got a second concussion. And Dale's told me that he's just crashed. And so I go driving into the speedway. And as I'm driving in, I'm passing driving past the medical center, and I see the team's golf carts and pick carts and everything out front of the medical center. And I, I'm thinking, you know, I, I stop and I kind of go running in to see how Robbie is. And I walk, I go into the in, in there, and I see a couple of guys from the team. And I said, "How's Robbie?" And they go, uh, "He's that Methodist uh, Eric's in here in the back because oh, he's just had the same crash and it, it pitched him in." And he went and hit nose or uh, nose first and cracked bones in his ankles. Your
0: two teammates to uh, so one, one went to Methodist, went to the hospital and the other's in the med center, right? as <laughs> Well, and
1: they're just about to take Eric to the hospital, but he <laughs> <laughs> just, so, you know, we get to the track and so I, it was the, you know, trying to put gloves on, trying to get a helmet over the burns on my face. And, you know, you go out there and you drive and there was, again, there was a glimmer of the speed is there. We can do this. <laughs> if we can just get an engine to hang together and I get a shot, I can, I can do four laps. Yes. There's a little tiny little bit of doubt in the back of my mind going, but I don't know if I can hold the steering wheel for 500 miles. Oh God. We'll deal with that next weekend. Uh, (laughs) Um, and that's, that's the, that's the thought process. And yeah, unfortunately, as it turned out, you know, another motor on saturday the team decides that's it we're changing switching the engines over from these buick turbos to chevy Elmores, the old ones um and uh, on sunday it's like okay last day of qualifying wake up look out the window it's pouring rain
0: and you were done that was it
1: well actually the rain stopped that i don't forget Four thirty in the afternoon mm-hmm. they dried the track we got out there i did i did four laps did a mock qualifying was probably about maybe in fact I think at that time Scott Pruitt was slowest and I think it was like a couple of tenths of a mile an hour off of his time so we're kind of thinking maybe we can do it but Eric has also come back and he's way healthier than I am and but his car I think is damaged and we're at that point now where we got Eric had commitments to his sponsors I had commitments to my sponsors Robbie had commitments to his sponsors and we're talking with Dale and then finally we kind of went, Eric, you take the car out and try to qualify. So he went out and tried to qualify and he didn't quite make it either. So all three of us missed the field. Um, actually, no, I, I take that back. I think Eric might've put it in the field. I can't remember even now it, that all kind of got a little hazy all that kind of, kind of stuff. But I think we ended up putting, uh, all three of our sponsors on one car or we bought another, we went to another team and said, put our sponsors on their car or something like that. So. But yeah, it's yeah how long disappointment, f- fear yeah, all that stuff.
0: How long had it taken you to put together the put together the riot the, the funding for the riot and the deal?
1: Uh, so I had gotten a sponsor for the Vancouver IndyCar race, my hometown race in 1991 and for the one race. and we did sort of a promotion around it and it worked really well for the company. So the next year, They sponsored me in Vancouver and Toronto Indy. They also got the Australian uh, branch of the company to sponsor me to go do the Gold Coast IndyCar race in Australia. So we've kind of taken it from one race to three races. In fact, I think they might have even done something at Long Beach that year. So we did Long Beach. And then at the end of that year was the full-on presentation pitch, and we got them to come up with enough money that somehow Dale, Coyne, and I were convinced that we could somehow do the season. Um, so this was, this was
0: at the end of the year before? So this, was, this would have yeah. been the year before the 500 then?
1: Yeah, so the end of 92, got that deal put together. And so it was going to be, I'm going to do the whole season in 93, what's... which included the 500. Yeah, yeah.
0: What's it like, forgive me, I, sh- I should know this, but what's it like when... You, you have a contract and you break a contract like that. When you like, let's say if you couldn't have gotten your sponsors onto the car and you were suddenly on the hook for, for running their, running their logos in the 500 and you weren't running it, are the penalties financial? How do they, how does that work out? Does the, I mean, it, I know there's no ground rule with a lot of it, but.
1: Yeah. I mean, my, the contract I had didn't deal with that, <laughs> which was maybe a good thing. More importantly though, the people that I dealt with at that company and I will tell you, it was Agfa film. Um, you know, competitor to Kodak and Fuji, yeah. and there was Agfa, and they are some of the most amazing, wonderful people that I ever dealt with in my entire life because they were incredibly understanding, and you know, I you know, I think they they knew that I didn't just go, hey, I'm taking the money and I'm running. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, so I think they were. Yeah, they were very understanding about it and appreciated the effort. And, you know, we did we did a lot of things to kind of make up for it. So race weekend, they had guests come in to the Indy 500 to watch the race. And I went and spent a lot of time pretending to shake hands with my <laughs> mummified hands hmm. and spent a lot of time, you know, schmoozing and doing all the... And, and in some ways, I think I wouldn't be surprised if there was a little bit of all of their guests that came in that knew the story and were sitting here, they may not have ever had a had chance to have a conversation with the driver. Yeah. And yet here I was, I'm hanging out with them. They're hearing the story. They're kind of like, you know, we're behind you even more now. <laughs> so I think it turned into a, I'm not going to say it was a positive, but it was not a negative.
0: It's it's interesting. We we talk, we talk end up talking a lot about uh, management on, on the show and people who uh, well good you know the difference between good managers and bad managers and people who deal with stress and and the the line in so many cases seems to be acknowledging reality and not getting getting in a tantrum over it right and realizing that there are certain things that your employees or the people you are in contracts with can do and past certain point like what's happened has happened and you can't change it and getting extremely upset or micromanaging or you know attempting to, to you know fly the airplane when it's already crashed doesn't do anything and that that realism, like the hallmark of so many good managers and so many good just people who work with other people always comes down to some degree of empathy. Like you were in a hard spot, you know, I mean, the people at Agfa who decided not to be a dick to you obviously had some recognizance of that, but it's some degree of empathy and also realizing that, you know, nine times out of 10, most people are doing the best they can in a given situation, if they're there representing somebody else or if they've gotten into an agreement, good faith, all that stuff. Right. It's a, it's empathy and faith. I think.
1: Absolutely. And, and uh, the management thing, I always remember this story and I, uh, I don't know the details enough. It it may be one of those things that the story has gotten uh, stretched a little bit (laughs) through the years, but apparently years ago, Tom Watson was the CEO of IBM and Apparently, some employee made a mistake that cost IBM something like a million dollars or $10 million or something like that. And Watson was asked, when are you firing a guy? And his response was, I'm not. I just spent $10 million making sure that mistake never happens again. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, yeah, I think, uh, and I would say that motorsport it's an extreme sport way I look at that is the people in the sport are some of the most extremely thoughtful, nice, hardworking, ethical, great people that you will ever meet in your life. And yes, there's a very small percentage who are the exact opposite. They're <laughs> extremely in the other direction, but they're a very small percentage. And, you know, I think we look at, you You, you look at people, you know, look at IndyCar racing. and you go, Roger Pinsky, Chip Ganassi, Michael Andretti, and you go hard driving, super, you know, aggressive kind of stuff. They care about their people. Yeah. It's you know, you look at Total Wolf or you know, or Christian Horner in Formula One, or Rick Hendrick in NASCAR, or whatever. They care about their people. And I think that's why they win more than any, anybody else.
0: It's it's interesting because you know, we going back to the, the good management, bad management thing. You know, the results, it's it it the people who seem to get it and who seem to get that like the way to not faceplant fail, have things come apart, is not to obsess about that faceplanting and failing and, and then really pour into it. I mean, postmortems are necessary and figuring out what you've done wrong is necessary and critical, but they, they're always focused on how they can help the people around them do what they need to do instead of i mean the, the whip crack aspect you know never comes into it which is you would think would be it's like what you just you know the, the ibm story you would you would think that that these things that sound very simple and sound very straightforward and very obvious when you hear them you would think that it would just be this this obvious thing to everybody but it's, it's not and and in motorsport you know there's the the good bad people thing the good good human bad human dichotomy is is always interesting because when you know the, when the bad eggs filter up their stories. St- everybody knows their stories. Everybody knows who they are. Everybody knows where they come from, and that you know they're kind of not great on a thousand levels. But so we're almost out of time here. I've got two things left. One, um, when you when you left IndyCar, you you ended up with a you had a pretty substantial pro driving career after that in sports cars. You had factory rides with BMW and Ferrari. You know, really cool Ferrari prototype. You drove E thirty sixes and Speed Vision. Uh, this a nice arc. There was a Daytona win. You know, it's really cool experiences. Uh, a career like that in the cockpit, you know, a lot of people would kill for. But it was still a step down from where you want it to be. And and there's that's a really common progression in motorsport. You know, you see people stepping out of F1 into IndyCar. You see people stepping out of IndyCar into sports cars. And and all of this is. You can read it in interviews. You can see it on their faces when they're talking. There are people who end up being okay with that very, very quickly, and there are people who always look at it as slumming. And I'm too. I'm. I'm better than this, and I deserve better than this. And by God, I'm going to tell people that I. I really should be somewhere else. You obviously never went there because you're. Well, first off, you're Canadian, which means you're an extremely nice guy. But more to the point, you. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) I'm sorry. But more to the point,
0: you know, you, you, you clearly had a a pretty good lens on it. How, but when you were in the moment, how did you chew on that? You know, were you ever sitting in, in sports cars? I mean, and, and thinking, well, you know, a couple of years ago I was in an Indy car or did it just work differently? Because it's not a failure. It's a, it's a sideways step, right? You're still getting paid to drive. Then that's a hell of a thing. Uh,
1: I don't think that, that so was i disappointed that i couldn't achieve goals that i wanted for in indycar yeah i i I, you know i can't lie i mean that that there are there was some disappointment there but i never felt like there was a well i deserve that uh uh i think but i also i mean by the end of 94 i'd sort of been pushing this rope uphill or whatever that saying is for a number, a lot of years. And it was, it was, it was wearing. And it was getting to the point where, where the, I guess the downside was beginning to outweigh the upside. And, and yeah, every time I got into an indie car, uh, even a underfunded, <laughs> you know, not not the best car, uh, actually it wasn't until partway through 94 where I guess I kind of accepted it. And, and, uh, I, I, I tell this only for, I don't want it to come across the wrong way, but, uh, we were racing in Detroit bell bell Isle, and, uh, I had qualified, I can't remember, but in the twenties somewhere that was in the day, you know, back in 94, typically they would start 28 cars and. Typically, there'd be 32 cars that would show up. So, four cars would go home without making the field. And I'd qualified, I forget, 22nd or 21st or something like this. And I go back to the hotel and I get in the elevator and Alan's Jr. gets in with me. Mm-hmm. And he goes, Hey, I saw what you did today. Ayrton Senna wouldn't have done any better than you did.
0: Really? I'm kind of like, That's so cool. Okay. That's so cool. I'm
1: okay with that. <laughs> uh, I- I- and so I think that, uh, you know, I got to a point where was like, okay, I don't know how long I'm going to be able to drive an car again. I'm just going to enjoy my time here. And I actually realized that I, I drove better in that last part of the season after that, when I kind of just accepted that whatever happens, happens. Hmm. And I'm going to enjoy it while I'm here. And fortunately, you know, I'd had IMSA teams come and have me test and offer me deals and pay me to drive. And yeah, I mean, I'll tell you that the first time I went testing at Sebring in an IMSA prototype car, and it's a two-day test. And I meet this guy named Jeff Brown, who became one of my best friends in racing, one of the best engineers, and we spend two days working together. And there is a moment when I'm driving down the straightaway, and I literally started to laugh. <laughs> and I'm just like, they're paying me to do this. This is so cool. And, and, it, and it, wasn't the, it wasn't the money It was the ah i don't have to push that rope uphill anymore (laughs) and i can focus on what i love to do the most which is drive a car and not be so caught up in the i gotta do this i gotta do that i gotta i gotta put a sponsorship proposal together for that i gotta think about this contract i gotta go and do that pr thing i had to focus on driving a car and that's what i love the most so in a way, you can look at it and you go, yeah, it's a step down. In another way, it was a step up because I was doing just about 100% of it was focused on what I love to do. And I didn't have to do a lot of the other stuff that I didn't want to do.
0: That's, that's so great. I mean, because it just paints this picture of the rest of your career in the cockpit as just being fun. I mean, work in the way that it always After, is, but fun. So we're, we're about out of time, but we have, have a minute for one more thing. We have this, this question we ask everybody who comes on the show to sort of close things out and kind of, kind of just put a bow on everything. It's a simple thing, but the answers are different for everybody and they're always very telling. So what's the first thing that goes through your head when things go wrong? No wrong answers.
1: Uh, The first thing is how do I fix this? (laughs) I mean. How do I fix this and move on? It's pretty that, good answer. I, I, I mean, it's, it's, like, it's like going through a corner and making a mistake and, you know, getting a little sideways and no, oh, I just cost myself three tenths of a second. I can't go back and fix that there. I better focus on the next corner and I'll deal with that when I come back around again. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, how do I fix it?
0: <laughs> I like that. Next time. <laughs> well, I like that. Thanks, Ross. Thanks for the time, and uh, it was really good to have you here. We really appreciate it.
1: It's been it's a blast.